Welcome to LilyPod episode 73. When helping is hurting. Jeff and Kathy Teichert, bringing you another episode of LilyPod, a production of Love in Later Years. We are certified life coaches, authors of the Amazon bestseller Intentional Courtship, and members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our messages are directed toward mid-singles and later married couples. We also welcome all who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. Welcome again, LilyPod listeners, and we have a really important topic this afternoon. One of our members actually made a post suggesting that we do this topic, and although we have spoken to it in other forums, uh, we haven't necessarily done so on this podcast, and uh, this gives us a chance to delve into it a little bit. So the topic, of course, is when helping is hurting, And Kathy, would you like to explain what that means? Yeah, so within our Love in Later Years group, uh, like Jeff said, one of our members asked specifically if we could do a podcast on this subject, and we thought it actually worked also as our title. And effectively, I mean, it it comes in lots of different forms, and that's why this is our focus today. Um, It can be codependency. It can be obliging. It can be overhelping, overfunctioning. It can be any number of things. I mean, it could even be what Stephanie Parrish talked about in her interview, which was, which was so great. If you, if anyone missed that, it's, um, I believe the title is, what is that title? It was divorce. Um, oh, how to, how to love again after divorce and death. That's not the title, but it's basically that's the topic. And for her, she was in a marriage for a long time to someone who had mental illness and a great desire to end his life. And she kept helping him spare his life. And he didn't want that. And I, I think that put her in a really tough spot. And what's interesting is that after spending decades in this situation, she finally felt done with that effort. And interestingly enough, her greatest fear of him actually going through with it and dying by suicide wasn't realized. In fact, he rose to the occasion when he no longer had someone bailing him out and enabling those attempts. Now, he did eventually pass away from the effects of previous attempts, but he didn't continue trying. In fact, he kind of stepped up and made something a little more of his life because there was no other choice other than, you know, to step up or end it. Right. And you would think that going through the divorce that they went through would be an impetus to commit suicide if that was your intention. But, but for him, it, it apparently was a time he could reevaluate and and uh, make different decisions. And now, it could have gone the other way. 
it really could have. So, I mean, she really didn't know. And she did the best she could with the knowledge that she had. And I don't think, I mean, of course, you know, she wouldn't have ever wanted to to cause hurt. And I don't think that that is, is necessarily, you know, what what happened. It's just that, you know, when he wasn't given the opportunity to step up, he didn't. And then when he was, he did. And again, not always is that going to be the result, but ultimately she, you know, she felt like she needed to step away and let whatever happens happen. And it ended up um, working out for the better for both of them. You know, there was a woman I dated quite seriously during my mid-single years uh, who told me that when she and I started to get close, that her former husband would say, if you marry somebody else, I'm going to kill myself. And she went to her therapist and said, you know, I feel really guilty because my former husband's in all this pain and I'm dating someone I really like, but I don't, you know, I don't want to be responsible for his death. And her therapist said, you're not, Uh, you're not responsible for his choices. She said, um, basically that you need to accept that his committing suicide, regardless of what else is going on in the world, is a possibility. And once you can live with that possibility, then, you know, you can move on with your life. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a, I don't know how many of you out there have had the experience of having a a former spouse who told you, you know, if you divorce me, I'll kill myself or, or, or whatever. I would guarantee that some people listening to this have actually had that, that threat. If you continue to give in to that threat, um, you know, you're only enabling the, the bad behavior. You know, and it, it, it's hard to see it clearly when you feel responsible for someone else. And right. the, the fact is we never can be responsible for someone else. And I, I actually think this is illustrated so well. If you look from above at a five lane freeway and you see cars in each lane and you can see how narrow those lanes really are. Right. And if we were to just swerve in and out of other people's lanes, when those other people are in their own lanes, we would cause major accidents and we would hurt many people um, physically. Right. And I think we can look at that in our own lives and in our relationships and know that the focus of our lives needs to be on our own lane and what we can control. I mean, like the serenity prayer, which we did a podcast on earlier that, you know, we focus on, what we have the power to control. We are aware of those things we don't control, which is basically anyone else with agency, which is everyone who is not us. Right. And, and then we have the wisdom to know the difference. And this is one area in which it's actually very clear what is in our lane and what is not. And yes, we affect others. And I do think that's why we have relationships and we can affect people for the better but not by trying to do their work for them. Right. I mean, I think this idea of staying in your lane doesn't necessarily mean that your lane doesn't include 
helping and ministering to other people and that sort of thing. I think what it's really, uh, what the metaphor is really telling us is there are things you can do to show up in the world and bring goodness to the world, to a relationship, to whatever role you're in at work or whatever. And you can bring goodness, but the idea is not, well, I'm going to behave in such a way that, that I will control the, the reactions of the people around me uh, and I will manage their reactions with my behavior. And right. that, that's a very exhausting thing or, to try to do. Like that therapist recommended or try to prevent their own choice. Right. Um, I mean, we can try, but... And we might even have success, but almost kind of like what Dr. Bear said, if we have success, that's, that actually is part of the problem is if we're having success in preventing somebody from doing something, then they feel stripped of their agency and their choices and they're not taking accountability. And this is where we can't get into over and under functioning. If you're the kind of person that likes to help, you're a kind hearted a person who likes to assist and uh, and nurture, and I think a lot of women we are in that role as as parents, as mothers. Um, of course, I think men can also to be um, to be over helpers and over functioners as well. And if we have that tendency, then what does that mean with our partner? Well, that means our partner has to serve as an underfunctioner. Right. Um, it's almost a natural response to overfunctioning is not as is almost learned helplessness. Right. And I think that's another way in which helping can be hurting Our, you know, our good intentions can actually hurt our partners and ourselves because when we're not staying in our own lane and we're not setting boundaries, then we can feel actually quite resentful of doing all the things we think we need to do because we think we're responsible to do them and then be frustrated that we didn't take care of ourselves or that, or that someone else didn't take care of us the way we think they should have because we're busy doing that. Kathy, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, In Her Shoes uh, with Tony Collette and Cameron Diaz, but they play these two very different sisters. And the, uh, the, the Tony Collette character, she is an attorney and very successful and, you know, makes lots of money. And she had, had developed a relationship with someone. And then her little sister ends up breaking up, I think, at the beginning of this movie. And she moves in with her. And as, uh, as she moves in, she, she, does all kinds of things to be irresponsible and sabotage the situation. And uh, at some, at one point, the the other sister kicks her out and says, you need to get out of here today. And she says, well, what am I going to do? Where am I going to sleep? And she said, "Uh, you are not my problem. You are your problem. (laughs) Actually, and, that's a great quote for this. Huh? And, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to say that we're not our brother's keeper because, you know, we, we are, especially in marriage, we're our, our partner's keeper to some degree. But 
but even that's, then that's to be in real love not right. to be responsible for something you cannot be responsible for right yes and and, and th- that's what staying in your lane is is you you deal with the things that are within your immediate orbit or control and you use your own behavior to show up in a way that brings goodness to the world and to your relationships. And you don't worry too much about how the other person or other people are responding to it. Uh, You do your best to act with integrity as opposed to doing it in a calculated way to get the other person to respond in a particular way. Well, and if we're comparing our life experience with relationships to driving on a highway, you know, the healthier our vehicle shows up, you know, not in a wreck, the the more influence we have, the better we can get to where we're going, the better we can fulfill the roles that we've been appointed, um, those stewardships in our lives, uh, because we are showing up having taken care of our own vehicle, our own bodies. Um, and that's where, you know, our boundaries can come in help, helpful you know, when we know, okay, I need a certain amount of sleep, I need a certain, you know, amount of nutrition, and this is the time in which I need to do that. And um, I think we can even tell our loved ones, hey, I want to be there for you. And so it's not going to be right the second, it's going to be tomorrow when I'm well rested, or right. whatever we need to do for uh, our own emotional well being, which we are we are the only ones who can be responsible for that. You know, it's funny. The other day, my 11-year-old came in and he said, nobody wake me up before 11 <laughs> or else I'm going to be really, really mad at you. <laughs> and of course, you know, he, he was setting a boundary, <laughs> but he was also making other people responsible for his own emotional well-being. And, you know, <laughs> he's not meant to be an immature adult yet. But I think as adults, we sometimes do that. If you don't yeah. do this, I'm going to be really, really mad at you. Like as if being mad. In fact, I, I asked him, I said, so who's being who's going to get hurt with you being mad? And he's like, me. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knew when I asked him the question. Um, and, but sometimes we don't think about that. We think, ah, nope, I need to put this emotion of mine on someone else. Somehow someone else needs to be responsible for it, but no one can, not really. Right. You know, a, a, a way that I see this manifest all the time, uh, through my coaching efforts is when you've got somebody who thinks, well, my, my whole life was about, uh, being a wife and mother or a husband and father. And, and I have seen it from both the, the male and female clients. Uh, but they defined themselves very much in, in these roles that they played. And it's almost like, well, now that my marriage is over, what's the point? That was a waste of 20 years or whatever. And I think oftentimes within a relationship, we think, well, what's the most important thing to me? It's this relationship with my wife or my husband. And so we focus on it obsessively. And I think I did this in my first marriage to be quite candid, uh, just over-focusing on the relationship instead of having 
some of my own things and kind of staying in my own lane. And the most important thing to me was managing the relationship and keeping that strong. And, and the uh, irony of that is that when you, when you hyper-focus on the relationship, you, you really do a couple of things. One, you overload the relationship. It becomes overwhelming to your partner. And so that's one manifestation of, okay, when helping hurts or when focusing on my relationship, um, you know, may backfire. Might be smothering. Possibly. And it, it's funny, a lot of well-meaning people when I was going through my divorce or, or when it was being contemplated, you know, people who found out would say, do you think maybe you need to start spending some more time with your wife or taking her out more or, you know. And they came up with all these ideas with the idea that I was being neglectful. And in fact, she thought the, the exact opposite, that I was being too solicitous, that I was, you know, too, too much um, focused on the relationship and she felt she didn't have room to breathe. And so I think it's important, number one, don't, don't overload the relationship. And then the second thing that I think is related to this, uh, and and we see this in parenting a lot, but I think we see it in in relationships between men and women as well. Um, think about the the little Cub Scout helping the little old lady across the road. Nice thing to do, right? Polite gesture. But imagine if he's helping her across the street when she doesn't want to go, <laughs> and. And very often, um, I think we become so uh, fixated on a particular thing in our relationship that we're trying to give people advice they don't want or getting them to change in a way that they don't want to change. And Or helping them go somewhere they don't even want to go. <laughs> exactly. And, and we may have good intentions in terms of thinking this would be really good for this person and it would make them happier in this way or that way. But I'll tell you what makes people the most happy. It's being able to know that they have the freedom to do what they want in their own life. Uh, it's, it's being able to make decisions without the other person constantly burdening them with all the... Uh, reasons why they should go a different direction. Well, and right here, I think, is the perfect time to explain to our listeners the difference between coaching and pretty much everything else we do in Love and Later Years. Right. Um, because I think sometimes the impression is, oh, if I get life coaching with Jeff or Kathy, they're going to give me all this advice because that's what they do in podcasts and that's what they do in their videos and their written content. You know, all these things that we offer for free um, as food for thought, as an opportunity to maybe consider other points of view. Uh, but that's not actually what coaching is. Coaching is very much the opposite. It, uh, it's us helping you discover your own wise answers. And, and you make the calls. You make the decisions because it's your life. Right. I mean, we might give advice along the way, but it's, it is basically to help you reach your objectives. It's not our job to tell you what you want. Well, and, and the advice would be in harmony with your objectives. Exactly. And so, yeah, a big part of it, I, I tell Kathy all, all the time after I come out of coaching sessions, you know, I think the client talked about 90% of the time, the first, you know, three-fourths of the session, and then I talked 90% the last fourth. 
because it's really important before I give any advice or before I, you know, try on different thoughts or with, offer any with you to really know, to really know where you're coming from the best I can. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, let's suppose I take my glasses off and I put them on you. This was an example Stephen Covey used all the time. And, you know, you say, well, gee, I, this is blurry. I can't see. And I say, well, they've, it's really helped me, right? It's really helped me a lot. <laughs> Try harder. Yeah, why know? isn't it helping you? Try harder. It's, and, and, and of course, you looking looking through my glasses, you're, you know, there's a good chance you're not going to, to see things exactly as I see them. And so it's important to diagnose before you prescribe. And, <clears throat> and part of that, if you're kind of have a tendency to be a little codependent is to listen more than you talk. And that can be hard because you want to help someone. You, you get your own sense of worth and value by having other people take your advice or by saying or doing something that that person is going to value and then you value yourself more. The, the problem with, with depending on other people for validation that way is it puts a tremendous burden on them. And, and so I think that's, you know, even if we mean well and we want to help, uh, having expectations of other people that they live and do things the way we expect them to puts a tremendous weight, tremendous burden on that relationship. Well, and I don't even think there's awareness that's happening oftentimes. Right. Um, you know, this, this reminds me of, uh, uh, Ruben, is it Gretchen Rubin? Yeah. Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies. If you've never read that book or if you're not familiar with her work, I'll just give you a basic breakdown. But she says that all of us are are basically one of four tendencies in terms of how we relate to the world, how we function. Um, you know, one is the upholder who both values what other people want and need from them and what they need and want from themselves. Mm -hmm. Um and then there's the questioner who questions everything that is expected of them. And they really kind of only want to serve one master themselves. So they probably won't need this podcast as much as others. <laughs> but, um, then there's the obliger who does the opposite, who kind of dismisses their own needs and mostly focuses on what other people expect of them. And then there's the rebel who basically just flat out says, I don't want to commit to anything. That's me. <laughs> And I'm the upholder. So <laughs> although I don't think that I overfunction in our relationship, but we both work hard and I think we both take initiative. But Jeff just does so more randomly and at his own will and timing. <laughs> and I like to know what to expect and I like to be able to commit to things and follow through. And I don't want to make promises I can't keep, so I don't make very many. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we figured out how to get along with that, um, that kind of almost opposite tendency in ourselves. Um, but, you know, sometimes we work with, I mean, we work with basically coaching clients from all different tendencies. And the, the thing we've noticed when we work with a the obliging tendency, um, they're so kind hearted and they are such helpers that they like, they, they have this deep desire to 
to serve a role in the people they love's lives. So the people they love, they want to serve a role in their lives and, and they want to help and they want to serve and, you know, and they, they might even attract, um, people who need help. Right. And so some, a conclusion I've come to recently, and of course, this could backfire. This this could be the opposite of what a person needs to do. Again, it's your own wise answers. This is just, these are just ideas. But you might, if you're an obliger, find value in working in a helping field so that you're having an exchange of energy where you're helping and getting paid for it. And you're getting that fulfillment of your obliger tendencies. Well, and but, then you're also getting help from people who are actually asking you for it. Exactly. Right. If you're a therapist or a social worker, people are coming to you. Um, the The key, though, is to make sure you don't do the same thing in your personal and family relationships. Because sometimes if you're in a helping field and you're not really realizing that you have that obliger tendency, you'll you might end up doing the same with your family, same with your partner. And that's where you want the the function of a relationship to be different. It's still an exchange of energy, but instead of being monetary, it's give and receive. Right. Um, because, you know, we all have a desire, I think, to be in a relationship where we're loved as much as we love. And I think even an obliger who might have the tendency to give or overgive and overhelp and would like the same in return, but they don't quite know how to how to get that in their partnerships, especially if they end up attracting someone who's under functioning. Kathy, I think what you've just been talking about is uh, not the opposite, but it's a different way that this dynamic shows up when helping is hurting. Uh, for example, you've been just talking about how an obliger almost feels obligated to do what their partner or whomever they love wants. That I think they also feel motivated by it as well. Right. And so, yeah, if I know what you want, then I can meet your needs. Even if, you know, you have a slight cold and I have pneumonia, I'm going to be up waiting on you. You know, I, I think there is a tendency among some people to, give in or to do what their partner wants, even if they don't think that that would be best. And, and I think that's a different manifestation uh, than the person who is willing to take over your life and tell you what you ought to do and run you and all of that. Oh, sure. Because I think there's all sorts of ways in which helping can be hurtful to ourselves and or others. Right. And usually... I think that involves when we're seeking to get our self-esteem from, from other people's validation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's also whenever we go to extremes, because I think there's often times when helping is actually helping. Right. Uh, as long as we maintain proper boundaries. In fact, I know that for anyone familiar with codependency, sometimes um, I know they'll on purpose say no to an obliger or to a, an overhelper, someone who they know will hurt themselves to help others so that they're not participating in perpetuating the problem. Right. Uh, so that they can say, no, I'd, I'd rather you take care of you. 
right. you know, that kind of thing. And I, I think maybe, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I would assume that those people would find that loving and, and maybe even supportive because they probably almost need someone to not need them so that they're not overburdened. You know, I wish I could remember the story, but I think it was a podcast I was listening to. Might have been a book. But in any case, there was a man who had had been paralyzed in his legs. Um, and his wife and kids had been taught um, when he was going through recovery and doing physical therapy and all of this, uh, that don't do things for him that he can do for himself because he needs to exercise those muscles. He needs to the best he can, you know, become accustomed to taking care of himself. You know, don't, if he comes uh, or if he asks you to come and do something for him that he can do himself, don't come running. Now that seems counterintuitive. It seems unloving in a way to, to, see this poor crippled guy in a wheelchair or whatever and say, nope, get out of bed and get into your wheelchair and come get it yourself. Well, that sounds, sounds unkind, but the message of course is no, what you're doing is insisting that this individual take care of himself to the extent that he's able. And it, it preserves whatever, muscle memory and strength and whatever this guy has and even to, dignity right right to do for himself whereas if we if we insist on doing everything for uh for the person well in a way you're crippling them because they don't have to do for themselves and they get used to dependence well and for all the parents out there who really love your children how difficult is it to watch them struggle? How hard is it to allow them to experience some negative consequences from bad choices? I think we we would rather jump in and save them. We would prefer to not deal with the agonizing pain a parent has to experience loving someone enough to allow them to struggle. And I, when you brought this up, I thought of our savior and our collective father in heaven who allowed him to go through what he did for us. I, I mean, that, there's no bigger example of that um, kind of sacrifice on a parent's part. Right. And uh, so like you said, we think we're helping when we want to rush in and save someone from a struggle, but just like a little baby bird that has to learn how to get out of its shell in order to be born. If we were to do that for that bird, that bird wouldn't thrive. Um, it's, you know, and we're the same way. So, you know, how do we know the difference between when we're helping, actually helping or when our helping is hurting. I, I think it's through being mindful and intentional about how we are going about our lives. Is our focus in our own lane? Are, do we have appropriate and healthy boundaries? 
are we taking care of ourselves first and foremost? I think there was a someone on our page that brought up minding your own business. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think someone said something like, I need to mind my own business because I have enough of my own business to mind, not to manage yours. Right. <laughs> something like that. I mean, I, it was more cleverly said, but it was something to that effect. And I thought that was actually pretty brilliant because don't we all have enough of our own business to mind? <laughs> you know, I was thinking a minute ago, Kathy, when you were talking about parenting, um, I, I really very much uh, agree with the point that we've got to let our kids make mistakes. And, and sometimes that's hard. Uh, I think we can, we came up as parents in the generation of helicopter parenting where a kid can't play without a play date and they can't play outside and run the kids, run the neighborhood uh, unsupervised. You know, there's all that kind of stuff. But I, I recall specifically uh, a boy I grew up with and I was, pretty good friends with him, but he had been on a special episode of a popular TV show uh, from back in the 70s and 80s. And every time it, it was a Christmas special, and every time that particular episode was shown, he got paid. And it showed over the years quite a lot. And so uh, he had a sizable nest egg in, in his bank account. Um, that was enough to have paid for his entire college education uh, and then some. But all the time he was growing up, his, his dad wouldn't let him spend any money and he wanted him to account for every penny. And so what did the kid do? Well, he, he always saved back a little bit of his babysitting money that his parents didn't know about. And he would go buy mad magazines and hide them at my house and things like that. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Makes sense. And uh, so, yeah. And I I mean, I remember one time he and I went to a wrestling tournament and his dad called my mother after that and said, you know, this person spent everything I gave him. And I want to know how much does Jeff spend for lunch when he goes to one of these and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was like micromanaging the kid. What do you think happened to that big nest egg of money? when he finally got access to it at age 18 boom one year it was all gone because oh, that's he, so sad. he had never learned through making small mistakes uh he wasn't allowed to make to make mistakes and so when he finally had the liberty to start making mistakes he made big ones and uh i mean he got into drugs and all kinds of other stuff but but uh anyway Point being, I think we have to be, even as parents, where we feel really responsible for our kids and they're really important to us, we need to be to be cognizant of the importance of letting them make small mistakes, letting them learn from making little mistakes so that when they transition into adulthood, they transition better. And I think that involves giving them a little more freedom all the time as they're growing up. Which again, is hard to do. I mean, this is like why I think we have that example in our Heavenly Father and Jesus 
so that we can try to apply it in the small sphere in which we're experiencing it compared to that ginormous sacrifice that was made for us in like for the entire world um, so that we can allow our children to to thrive like you said by the small mistake I think everything you just said was really quite remarkable and you know I, I kind of want to go into a different part of this because our children might become addicts and, well, and let, let me make the point too on children becoming addicts or the kid that blew all of his money in one year or any of that i don't believe his father went into that experience and managed it the way he did because he wanted the kid to to be uh irresponsible no. in fact he, he wanted to prevent that he was trying too hard to prevent that. Mm -hmm. uh, and the kid was never able to learn on his own. Right. And I think sometimes uh, what we intend can, the opposite can happen if we're, if we're extreme about it. Right. So when it comes to addiction, you know, teaching our children what it is and what signs to look for, um, you know, and us being educated enough to do that, also, you know, we might have a partner who either becomes an addict or has a, a, a secret and addiction. You know, even if your partner has a secret addiction, it's almost impossible, I think, to not develop some codependency patterns without even knowing what it is, especially without knowing what it is. It's like when you start to kind of overfunction wherever they're falling short because of their addiction, whether you know there's an addiction or not. Um, it's actually kind of crazy how much this plays within relationships. And I think as a parent, especially if we notice our child is addicted to something that's not good for them, like our, our instinct is to say, no, don't do that. Get away from that. But what do they want to do when we say that? Well, it's kind of like in the Anatomy of Peace, uh, which I recently reread. Uh, the the person who a person was talking about how he disapproved of his children's friends, particularly his son's friends cho friend choices, and he said, "My trying to constantly separate from his friend, separate him from his friend, made him want him all the more." Right, and, and you recently told me that you made allies of your friends kids um, my kids friends yes that's and, true and they actually liked it um, right because they might complain about you to their friend and then their friend would say don't complain about your dad he's so cool and then they'll realize oh yeah i guess you're right he's cool like and that helped in the situation in which they might have been a little more rebellious otherwise right and and I emphasize this isn't like on Mean Girls where I'm going to do drugs with my kids. You know? Oh, no. Um, uh, that my, would be enabling as well. Right. I didn't try to be one of the gang uh, with with my kids and their friends, but it was more like I would get to know them. And when they were at our house, I might cook tacos for all of them. And I'd have a chance sitting there at the counter while I'm making their tacos to just say, all right, um, Justin, what do you think you want to be when you grow up or whatever? You know, I, I, just questions. What's your favorite class in school now? And and just taking that little bit of interest and in getting to know them 
um, made them into allies and supports instead of someone who's always encouraging my kids to, you know, to disregard me. Right. And even if those friends might not be making all the choices that you feel are in your child's best interest, at least you've, you're in with them. And, you know, I, this makes me think back to our LGBTQ uh, podcast and our interview also um, with uh, the mother of a, of a, an LGBTQ gay son, um, Mm -hmm. Becky McIntosh. Right. So those two podcasts you can access if, if that's something in the realm that you're, you know, dealing with, um, you know, children in any of those situations, but it's what I, what I learned from, I think, exploring this topic was that every Latter-day Saint mother who prayed over a child who was LGBT or Q, um, any of those categories, they all receive the revelation to love their children. Right. And so I kind of want to go back to the podcast with Greg Bear and Real Love and that concept of loving without expectation and without requirement of certain choices. And that's where we have a lot of power. And um, so, of course, learn about addiction, learn about codependency, learn about obliging, learn about, um, you know, staying in your own lane, you know, notice if you're over or under functioning in a relationship and either step up if you're under functioning or step back if you're over functioning and try to balance those relationships. Anything you're not getting paid to do and somebody's not coming to you for, um, make sure that you're both giving and receiving in that relationship. I think one thing that's, that's hard for many people, uh, well, and I'll give you an example from my missionary days, um, I, I was pretty good at, at getting people to agree to first discussions and, and, uh, I thought I was a pretty good teacher. And so I was sometimes reluctant to let my companions do the door approach or the approach of someone on the street, uh, because I could do it so much better. <laughs> but of course they don't grow by, by me taking over and just doing it. And I had to learn to step back and say, all right, he might not do it quite as well as me, but he needs to learn how to do it because I won't always be with him. And I think that it's, it's difficult for many of us in many situations, whether it's parenting or with a spouse or whatever, to stop over-functioning and allow the other person to... Uh, to function more because that person might make a mistake or they might not do it as well as me. And I'm, I want to step in and help them and save them and whatever. Well, I understand the temptation to do it. Sometimes I experience the temptation to do it, but I think it's important again to, to let other people shoulder their part in the relationship without stepping in to, to try to rescue them. You know, as an upholder, I, I definitely have part of this tendency in me and this podcast is as much for me as anyone else. So I, um, I'm grateful that we got to explore this and, you know, any, if at any time in the future you want to reach out, you know, if you're a regular listener 
and there's something we haven't covered yet that you'd like us to feel free to ask. Uh, we actually have a long list of things we'd like to cover and we only have one topic a week. So we just kind of chip away at our own ideas, but we're happy to add new ones as well. Yeah. One final suggestion I have on today's topic is if you're um, inclined to seek validation from other people, and we all are to some extent. I mean, we're not meant to be islands. You know, that in Genesis, it says it is not good that man should be alone. So we're meant to be social creatures and to even seek the approval of, of others. But if we're too dependent on that, there's a couple things that are important to remember. One is your self-esteem, your self-respect comes from your relationship with God. And that is a constant. God won't desert you. Uh, you know, everything that he does for you will be an act of love, even if you can't see that in the moment. And the second thing is seek out wise people, as Dr. Greg Bear talks about. Seek out people who will give you that love without expecting something in return for it, without expecting you to behave in a particular way uh, in order to deserve it. And, and when you find those kinds of, of relationships, it's easier to love and not uh, and not expect something in return yourself. It's easier to just bring goodness and and be filled with that love yourself. So those are are my final suggestions. seek seek uh, validation through your relationship with God and then seek to find people who know how to practice real love and and are dedicated to that and will love you without, uh, uh, burdening it with a bunch of expectations. Well, and like Dr. Greg Bear says, it's fun. It makes life and relationships so much more fun. Absolutely. So I'd just like to wrap up by referring everybody over to our YouTube channel, which is LilyTube. Um, two words. And you can search for it, Love in Later Years, or LilyTube. And um, we... Uh, have a video over there on overcoming codependent relationships. And so if you'd like a little more information specifically about codependence and how to overcome those kind of relationships uh, patterns, then um, we highly recommend that video over there. And we really appreciate you listening. We just passed 7,000 listens here and 8,000 hours of view time on our YouTube channel. So it's pretty exciting. We're reaching people and uh, we hope it's helping. Absolutely. I uh, find it rewarding to hear the comments that come back in. So feel free to, to comment, subscribe, and so forth. Again, remember that any time is a great time for more love in your life. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to LilyPod get notice of each new weekly episode. If you enjoy what you heard, give us a positive review. We want to reach as many mid-singles and later married couples as possible, so please share this podcast with those you love. 
To access fabulous free content like written articles and YouTube videos on LilyDube, and to learn about our book Intentional Courtship and Lily Coaching Services, visit loveinlateryears.com.